Hi, this is Frank McKenna, the Chief Executive Group Chairman of Downtown and Business. Uh, welcome to the latest episode in our Leaders Series. Absolutely delighted this week to be joined by the Chief Executive of Birmingham City Council, Deborah Cabman. Uh, Deborah, we've been trying to get her onto the podcast for a couple of months now, but just diaries kept clashing, didn't quite happen. Um, but by God, was she worth the wait. Absolutely fascinating conversation uh, for nearly enough an hour, talking about a very, uh, very career, um, some great experiences that she's had before she landed the job as chief exec in Birmingham, some lessons that she's learned from um, some leaders, some good, some not so good. Um, she did a stint working as a community development officer, uh, which is interesting to hear her thoughts on that. She also worked uh, for Momolum at one stage, and she's worked at regional, local and national government level. So you can imagine uh, that she's got uh, an awful lot of uh, experience, opinions uh, about government structures, how we can perhaps change and reform moving forward to deliver better services uh, for the people that matter, the communities uh, that matter. Um, I think the one thing I'll say when you listen to this podcast is that you will not be able to suggest anything other than the fact that Deborah Cabman is authentic. Uh, she says it as she sees it. It's, a, as I said, fascinating conversation. Sit back, uh, get yourself a cup of tea and uh, enjoy Deborah Cabman in the downtown den. This is Frank McKenna, uh, the Chief Exec and Group Chairman of Downtown in Business, and welcome to uh, the Downtown Den for our latest in our Leaders Series. And I'm absolutely delighted to be joined. And we've tried to do this for months now. Uh, Deborah Cabman, who's the Chief Executive of Birmingham City Council, well known to many in the Downtown Network. Deborah, welcome to the Downtown Den. Absolutely delighted to see you. Finally, we've managed to get together. We have. And hello, Frank. And uh, it's it's an absolute privilege to be asked to do this. So I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, thank you. Um, so as I say, this uh, season, we're looking at leaders, leadership. And I just wondered if you could give people a potted history of your career to date. Uh, I, I can. And and I've done this recently for, for some new graduates um, who wanted to join local government. And, and when I went through it, I thought, blimey. <laughs> and I'm still standing. Um, so, so I started. Uh, I started in London in the East End in the Department of uh, Engineering and Surveying, um, which taught me a huge amount actually. Being uh, you know a young woman uh, in the East End of London, working with predominantly men, was a, was a good introduction to the world of of work and a good introduction to the world of work as it shouldn't be uh, in today's age. Um, but it, it, it did teach me a lot. I then uh, moved back to Birmingham for love and uh, uh, worked in uh, community development, working with um, young black kids in Handsworth. And it was during after the uprising in the, in the 80s. And, and it taught me that um, actually the solution to a lot of the big challenges around unemployment, youth unemployment, was uh, it got to be skills and jobs. And I got so cross about it that I went back uh, and, and did my second degree, master's degree in economics at the University of Birmingham and then joined Birmingham City Council again and was part of a great renaissance of the city at that time where, you know, intentional decisions were made to invest in 
the service industry after the demise of the car industry. And, and it was a really exciting time for, for Birmingham as a city. Then moved to the northeast and um, had the the huge, huge um, privilege of working with Mo Molum uh, and uh, just uh, taught me a huge amount about the um, about how you could do leadership better, um, and, and taught me a lot about the humility of of leading. Taught me a lot about how you needed to be thoughtful and supportive of those that hold you up. And, I, and I'll talk a little bit more about what I mean by that. But she taught me a huge amount and, and became a good advocate and supporter, mentor of mine, and helped me navigate my way in central government, which was my next role after that. And I worked as a special advisor in the Department of Environment Transport and the Region, which is probably uh, just... Um, sharing with your listeners just how old I am, actually. Uh, again, working in central government was brilliant. You know, again, taught me a huge amount. And, and, and what I have learned by working in different sectors and, and in different geographical locations is that you do have to be a bit of a chameleon almost. But the most important thing is every single role that you have teaches you something new and teaches you how to, to be as, as, a, as an individual and a public servant. I then worked for the Audit Commission for a while, um, working with some really great people who are still in, in the sector. And um, uh, just learned just as much from the stuff that was really poor uh, at that time in terms of service delivery as I did from, from experiencing some really great services as, as well. Then I got my first chief exec role in um, St. Edmundsbury, which is uh, in Bury St. Edmunds in, in Suffolk. And... Uh, and have enough tales of working in that um, that local authority initially to kind of uh, keep everyone entertained after dinner, I think. Um, but, but again, um, just, I was, the, you know, I benefited from some really, really great supportive individuals around me who mentored me, who coached me and who supported me. Because when you become a chief exec, no, you don't go to chief exec school. You know, you're just... just <laughs> You know, people just assume that you'll know what the job's about, what you need to do, and will assume that you've got these great leadership skills of both people and place. And of course, it's your first chief exec's job. It's that's not the case. So you have to learn on the job and learn pretty quickly. Um, then became chief exec of uh, East of England Development Agency, um, covered the whole of East of England, and. And I, and I guess that was the first time that I really appreciated the, the power of good, strong relationships and partnerships with the private sector. And, uh, you know, the East of England was, was one of those regions that made a, a net contribution to the Exchequer. We had the most amazing innovation and creativity across a, a myriad of, of sectors across the economy. But we also had great opportunities as well that the, the region were able was able to kind of um, grab hold of. Um, then the temptation back into local government was was such that I I um, moved across to become the chief exec of Suffolk County Council, um, and that was a wonderful bit of my career actually. A, a count a county council that wanted to to grow and improve and to do some great stuff in in a place that had its own challenges. Um, rural poverty was the worst that I've seen anywhere, actually. Um, 
and, and also was, was able to use everything that I from the regional development agency and government about how how to move a large organisation and to change it and improve it. Uh, and then moved across to the uh, combined authority in the West Midlands, working with Mayor Andy Street, um, helping him to set that up and, and create something that is, I still think is quite impactful across the combined authority network. Um, uh, and then uh, that led me to the role that I'm in now as Chief Executive of City Council. Wow. <laughs> what an incredible career. And so, you know, geographically, you've covered almost the whole country uh, and you've also um, enjoyed experiences, as you say, both at sort of national, local government level, but also regional level. I just wonder if I could ask you this, Deborah, because you were chief executive of East of England Development Agency and then chief executive of a combined authority, so Still a debate, I think, being had by some as to which model, which structure is best. Some people still pine in the northwest, for example, for the development agency rather than the mayoral uh, models that we have now. What did you find with, with the differences and advantages and disadvantages of both, I suppose? Yeah, they've both got advantages and disadvantages. I mean, I, I mean, I'm a I'm, I'm kind of quite wedded to the regional development agency model because it was set up to achieve and, you know, the powers it had and the influence it had made it a lot easier to make decisions. And because of the board, you work to a board, an independent board that, um, that had both public sector representatives and private sector representatives, they both kind of smoothed out the edges in each of those sectors. So those private sector folk, you know, arrived puffing out their chest saying, you know, we know everything there is to know about, you know, efficiencies and everything and delivery. But but when they, they appreciated and understood the political environments that needed to operate, they kind of, they kind of, you could see the kind of shutters, you know, falling from, from their eyes. And, and similarly for, you know, the public sector representatives on the board, you know, they, they fully understood the need to be more efficient, to, you know, to be a little bit more intentional about some of the investment decisions, the need to do cost-benefit analysis, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so I think having both on a board in that way was a much better, a much better, better model because it meant that both sides of the coin understood the value of each and understood that you couldn't have one without the other if you wanted yeah. to be successful. So from that point of view, I think I think the model that was set up around regional development agencies meant that decisions could be made in a much more timely, efficient, you know, an effective kind of way that really that delivered for both the economy and for the uh, communities. The, the combined authorities, you know, in, in my view, have been set up to, to kind of start from a point of, you know, zero-sum game, you know, you win, I lose. Um, so, you know, but after having said that, if you look across the combined authority network, you know, the brilliant stuff that have been done both in the West Midlands and, and the you know, Greater Manchester area in particular, you know, they've achieved some really, really great stuff, despite all of that. 
Yeah, I, I think it's a great point you make in terms of the private sector engagement with development agencies, though, because uh, bizarrely at that time I was a politician and I was heading the Northwest Regional Assembly, which is the elected side of that coin, I suppose. Uh, and we had the Northwest Development Agency. Um, and I never quite felt as though local enterprise partnerships quite filled the vacuum that was left. But the private sector representation on development agency boards was much stronger um, and much more visible, actually, uh, and influential. Uh, and I do wonder whether we need to review and relook at how we engage the private sector moving forward on those strategic combined authority bodies. I, I agree. I, I think it would be, I think it would be a really positive move. And, and I think in part, you know, part of the success of the West Midlands Combined Authority was that, you know, you, you had a, a mayor who had credibility and huge achievements from working in the private sector, you know. So, yeah. yeah. So I, I think it would, I think that would be a good thing to do. And if, you know, you know I, talk, I talk a lot about, the ability for places to uh, to generate resources and funding, and and certainly for local government, you've got three opportunities. The first one is um, central government grants, which, and as you know, that money tree is getting more and more there. Yeah. And then you you know raise um, local taxes through business rates and council tax. And 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 I'm I'm simplifying to make the point. It's far more complicated yeah. than that. There are three buckets, really. And then the third bucket is attracting inward investment, whether that's domestic or foreign. And, you, you know, you've got to have an offer that's credible and is attractive and deliverable, you know, to attract those billions of, of kind of foreign investment that's kind of circling the globe at the moment. You know, so so having, you know, private sector credibility, helping you shape that offer, I think, is is really important in my view. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, but I say that now with my private sector hat on. But I yeah. would agree, obviously. You know, as I say, when when I was a politician, I found that really useful to have some of those really key um, regional entrepreneurs sat around the table and having those conversations, as you say, in a in a very meaningful fashion. Listen back to you and um, uh, another uh, thing you picked. Uh, I picked up on when you were talking through that fabulous career that you've had was your spell as a, a community development officer because I too worked in community development um, in Skelnersdale and St. Helens here in the north and it was one of the things that actually motivated me to go into politics mm. uh, because I was so frustrated seeing some mm. of the conditions and some of the situations that people are getting themselves into and I do wonder, I, not professing to know you particularly well but I think I know you enough to know that you're somebody who really wants to make a difference. Uh, and so did that stint as a community development officer motivate you in the same way to, to think, I need to go on and do bigger and better things here so that I can really influence the lives of these people? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah it did. But, but more than that, I think it uh, it was a defining moment in my career, really, because it it it, it gave me the experience and understanding and really grounded me. So, every, you know, I won't say everything that I do, but, uh, you know, the majority of the, the things that I encourage and develop and deliver are rooted from the place of 
doing the right thing for the for our communities. I mean, why, why else would you want to join a local authority if not to deliver the best services you can to meet the needs of the people in your place? And and the fact that you know, I've I've witnessed people in abject poverty. I've witnessed kids who are in care. You know, I've supported the elderly who literally were too frightened to leave their homes. You know, all of those experiences. I'm I'm not saying they've 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 made they've made me a great chief exec, but they've they've informed my value set, which I think is a is a good value set to do the job that I do. And and one of the things that I say all of the time with my corporate leadership team is, you know, let's just stop a minute. Let's just reorientate ourselves. Let's remind ourselves what we're trying to do here. Because you can get subsumed in all of this stuff and, you know, it becomes a game. Not a, not a game, but it becomes a set of tactical kind of moves and you it's very easily forgotten that, that actually we're doing this ultimately to ensure that we can deliver the best services we can for the people of this city. And I, and I think that stint that I spent working in communities with local, you know, with local councillors, with local community representatives, with parents and kids and grandparents and elders, you know, really informed the way in which I do my job. Yeah, I, I absolutely get that. I mean, I've, I think of all the jobs I've done, I think that was the two ways, one of the most rewarding, but one of the most frustrating yeah. as well. But as you yeah. say, I think it's fabulous when you've had that experience for a number of years that it does keep you grounded and anchored to an extent. And 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 uh, yeah, I can I can absolutely see where you're coming from. You also mentioned um, your first job in the East End, I think you said, of London, and it wasn't necessarily the, um, the let's put it, the, the PC uh, model that, uh, that many of us would just consider to be normal today. So what did you learn from that? <laughs> I think I think that's a conversation we need to have over a beer, Frank. Really. Um, <laughs> so what did I learn? So, so it was the first job I had after university. So, you, you know, and I was kind of into gender politics and stuff. You know, and you know, I wasn't a radical feminist, but I was certainly, you know, thought the the world was this nice shining place where everyone was treated equally, and because I was a woman, it shouldn't matter if I worked in a department of engineering and surveying, and and that was a a big lesson for me to learn, actually, that, uh, that, that, that there was a lot wrong with w- working in that kind of environment. And the, the way in which I dealt with that, um, you know, it was very kind of, you know, bit, you know, head on and challenging it. And I learned very quickly, you've got to be, you've got to probably be a little bit more thoughtful and Machiavellian in the way in which you do this <laughs> shit. Um, but they t- taught me a lot, but it also taught me that, it, you know, I, I realised that um, if ever I had children and I had a daughter, which I which I do have, achieved my absolute pride and joy, I I never wanted to, to collude in a world that treated women so badly, actually. And, um, yeah, it's, I, I think it... it uh, I've always tried to hold a hand out to those coming up behind me and and certainly ensure that the environment that my daughter grows in is a different one to the one that I, uh, I won't say endure, because there was a, a lot about that experience that was really good and positive. But, 
you know, um, an environment that made me question my own ability and, you know, right to be to be where I was. Yeah. But, it, you know, it's that adage, isn't it? You know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And, yeah, yeah. and certainly I think it, it made me a lot more determined to succeed and a lot more confident about my abilities. And so you fast forward a few years and you're working for one of the most formidable women that certainly I've ever met, and I'm sure you too, in Mo Melden. Um, what were the sort of things that, that you learned from that experience? Just just the, her humility and grace and um, quiet determination to do the right thing. And, you know, she, she taught me a lot about, um, you know, respecting the people who hold you up, mm-hmm. you know, and it could be the, the person that cleans your office. It could be the person that staffs reception. It could be the person that writes your brief or the person that drives you around, you know, without all of those, your life would be a lot harder and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't take much to be kind to them. But, but equally she, um, she, she taught me, um, to be thoughtful, but she also taught me to be brave. And sometimes there are things in your career which will be really tricky and difficult, and you will have to make a decision about whether you do the right thing or not. And she taught me every time you go with your gut and you do the thing that you know to be right. And it was quite profound, actually, quite profound, because she did live by those values. Yeah. It was a wonderful yeah, I mean, I've spent short periods of time with Mo Melon, but the other thing that um, I found, she had a, a very keen sense of humour, which I think you have oh, as well. Yeah. And yeah. and you yeah, bring that to the fun. workplace. You know, you are always got a smile on your face. You're always looking to have a laugh and a joke. Uh, and that's certainly something that you felt when you were around Mo Melon. You know, the, the next yeah. crack, the next yeah. joke was, was just around the corner with her, really, wasn't it? Yeah, she was great. Yeah, great sense of humour, actually. Yeah. Uh, and so I suppose the, the just for the final part of this um, this first half of the conversation, I just wanted to ask you about central government, local government. And um, obviously you've spanned a number of decades now and at some times public sector, public services have been reasonably well funded. Uh, I don't think anyone would suggest that is this ca- the case at this moment in t- time. Even the opposition party is saying, well, th- there's there's no money left, so we're going to find it difficult to invest in the things we think we need. And I just wondered what you'd noted in terms of the difference between your role at central government level and, and local government. What are the sort of things that you've picked up there in terms of differences? And are we still, despite those combined authorities, the elected mayors that you've mentioned, too centralised in this country, do you think? That is a big question, Frank. So um, do I think it's too centralised? Yes, I do, actually. Um, and, you know, working in the combined authority and local government during COVID, I think if ever there was an example of, of how not to deliver services, you know, directly to individuals. It was it was the way in which central government tried to control things like shielding from Whitehall. And, um, you know, very quickly realised that it just couldn't, it just didn't have the ability or or capacity actually to do that. And, and, and it was an exercise in acknowledging that they needed to let go and devolve stuff out. And, and you know what, I think local government and, regional authorities really stood up to the challenge 
and you know meant that people were supported and shielded and protected during that awful time that we all endured um but what we didn't do is then learn from that and make that you know the, the way in which we do things around here and then very very quickly you know things have been you know drawn back back to the center so so i do think we know that in in the majority of cases not all cases because there are certain things that would be just ridiculous to try and deliver at a local level. You do need that national perspective on some things. But even within that, so the NHS, for example, of course you need, you know, the clues in the title, but actually some of the ways in which we deliver, you know, uh, health and care services should be um, should be supported and delivered at a more local level, you know, and, and, I, and you know, with those people who have direct support and engagement with with local people. So I think that's the first thing. I do think we're too centralised. The, the difference between central and local, well, it's a long time since I've worked in, in central government. And, and I do think to, to a large extent, it depends on the culture of the government of the day. You know, when I, when I worked in central government, um, it was a relatively new um, Labour government who wanted to hear and understand from localities. So part of my role was was taking government out into communities and and just understanding what challenges they were, and then taking that back into the ministerial team and etc. And, and and they wanted to do that. You know, they understood that they couldn't make the change they needed to make unless they engaged and involved those people who were delivering the services. So, so that kind of approach was, I thought, really positive and really helpful and should be an approach that any, any government kind of takes. So, so my, my view, and, and Lord, nobody's going to ask me for my advice in government, but, but you know, my view is that, is that when you start from the point of needing to make radical change, and I, and I do think government will need to do that over time because you know, health, the big set pieces around health, education, transport will need to be radically reformed and be different if we've got any hope of, you know, maintaining that sense of public public delivery for those big things. So you've got to think differently and the impact and success of those will only be done if you engage those people in localities to inform, you know, both the de de development of the policy and the delivery of the, of the services. Yeah. Well, I think they definitely. Oh, should. that nicely, haven't I? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, you've you've done well. You you should have been a politician. No, they they actually what you um what you definitely should have is is people knocking on your door asking for your advice because of your great experience in this. So, um, listen, we'll take a very short break. We'll be back, and I want to talk really drill into your leadership style, the culture that you try and engender, and and some examples of well, I mean, you've you've already talked about your experiences in the East End, but some other examples perhaps of where that leadership perhaps hasn't gone as well as it might. So stick with us. This is me, Frank McKenna, in the downtown den with the Chief Executive of Birmingham City Council, Deborah Cabin. We'll be back in a moment. Hi, my name's Frank McKenna. I'm the Chief Executive and Group Chairman of Downtown in Business. And if you're not a member of DIB yet, why not? You are going to miss out on a sensational September of events. We've got events right across the country and we'll be speaking to some really influential politicians, including the Shadow Business Secretary, Johnny Reynolds, the Shadow Health Secretary, Wes Streeting, and the Shadow Justice Minister, 
Steve Reed. We've also got the property entrepreneur Chris Oglesby doing an event for us down in Birmingham. And we've got a whole range of other speakers, chief executives of local authorities, other business leaders, other politicians coming in to share their thoughts and opinions with the Downtown Network. If you go to our events section on our website, all the W's downtowninbusiness.com, then you will see what a fantastic range of events we have coming up in September. And if that's not enough to tempt you into a membership, then wait to see what we've got coming in the remainder of the autumn. We've got awards events happening in Manchester, Birmingham and Liverpool. We've got the two leaders from Liverpool and the Liverpool City region, Liam Robinson and Steve Rotherham joining us for a very special breakfast forum. We've got the Education Minister, Gillian Keegan, doing us an event at the Conservative Party conference. We've got Andy Street, the regional mayor from the West Midlands, in a breakfast event with us too. So a whole range of great people, great events, great networking. Join Downtown in Business today. As I say, visit our website and see some of the fantastic events that we've got for your pleasure happening in autumn 2023. Welcome back to the second part of our conversation with Deborah Cabman, the Chief Executive of Birmingham City Council, with me, Frank McKenna, the Chief Executive Group Chairman of Downtown in Business. We're in the downtown then, we're talking about leadership, and I'm going to ask Deborah about the type of culture that she tries to engender in her teams as a leader. Deborah, We've talked about that diverse range of experiences you've had. I'm sure you've taken good and bad from each of those jobs that you've been employed in previously. What are the sort of things that you try and get into your teams, get into your sort of leadership skill set when you're leading the teams and a massive, massive organisation in Birmingham City Council at this moment in time? two huge lessons, two huge lessons that I've learned over my career, really, in terms of leadership. The, the first one is that um, you have to be a bit of a chameleon and you have to have a variety of tools in your tool set. And, and what I mean by that is there will be times in an organisational's life, life cycle where you need to be unequivocal, a bit of command and control, intentional about what you need to do. There will be other times in an organization's life cycle where it is absolutely right that you're more collaborative, you're more engaging, you involve people in decisions, you open up yourself and the organization in a completely different way. And, and then, of course, wrapped around that is, is um, especially as a chief exec of a local authority, there, there is that relationship with the, the political cohort that you have to kind of manage as well. So the first thing is, you know, being a good leader, I think, in local government is understanding which levers to pull at which time to most effect. Could be command and control, it could be intentional, it could be more kind of collaborative and, you know, seeing that that sign behind you, Steve. Oh, sorry, Frank, I don't know why I said Steve. Frank, <laughs> you know, you've got you've got dream, leave, achieve. And, you know, that's that's consistent with you know, where you where you need to be when you're starting to make massive change in organisations. The first thing is you need to bring people on board. You need to dream and vision and, and create a vision, a compelling vision that people buy into. Then, then you need to have credibility and justify why that vision and that dream is needed. And then you need to put the building blocks in place to actually deliver the change that you need to make. 
But but I I also have learned very I, I learned very early on actually when I assumed my first managerial and chief exec roles in that as a chief exec or top of the organization, you are only ever as good as the people that work with and for you. So that ability to attract and retain really great people is really, really important. And, and that's what, what I'm doing at the moment. I'm building one of the best leadership teams in the country. We've been able to attract the most amazing people who are starting to have a profoundly, you know, um, have a profound difference on, on what we do and how we do it uh, in Birmingham. And that's the first step, really. And then, um, and then I talk to the whole organisation about what I want from them, actually. If, if they're going to join me on this journey of transformation change, I want them, you know, to do a, a number of things. But the first thing is being brave. You know, some of that is about, you know, being brave in, you know, letting your imagination fly, being brave about making decisions, but also being brave about calling out stuff that's not so great. And that's really difficult and hard. You know, and it is about saying, I don't believe this is the right thing for us to do and and, and being a bit loud about that. Um, but also as an individual, there'll be times in your life when you'll have to make you'll you'll be at crossroads and you'll have to make a decision about which path you want to follow. And and sometimes that, you know, if you want to follow a path that has not been trodden by you before, that's that's scary, isn't it? Yeah. So sometimes you just have to jump and make make the decision and be brave. And then the, the next the next thing I talk about is is be curious. And uh, I used to I used to refer to it as be troublesome, and I came to regret that. But but it is about you know asking the question why because you know when we when we have a new job or we move places you know you you you, you it's very easy for you to be subsumed in the kind of culture and the environment and and not kind of question why it's a good thing and and certainly bringing so many people into the city from outside. That's what I want them to do. I want them to be curious. I want them to ask why. Why do we do it like that? Why do you know to 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 just be curious and not not be troublesome because that's got a negative con connotation. But but to to just be probing and curious and ask the questions why. And then um, and then the, the third thing that that I talk to people about is you know you've just got to be true. You know you've got to do the right thing for the right reason. And I truly believe that because. Again, there are lots of things that, that are challenging us at the moment around how we deal with asylum seekers or how we welcome asylum seekers, what impact that has on, on our communities, how we ensure that every pound of inward growth in this city is, is kind of felt by the communities. It's not just, you know, one and done, people land, make their profit and move on. You know, how you make sure that that, uh, that growth is inclusive and everyone benefits. So, um, yeah, so, so those are the, the kind of things that I try and instill in, in the people that I work with uh, in Birmingham. And, you know, as an individual leader, you, you've got to be authentic and you've got to be honest. And you, you have got to, to trust people, I think. And, and it's very easy, isn't it? When, you know, I'm sure... You know, while we were trying to log on today, I bet you were thinking, "Oh, I could, do, I could do that." You know, if only I was, I, if I was in charge of that, I'd have had us, you know, connected, you know, minutes ago. And and it's really easy to do that, isn't it? But sometimes you've got to kind of let go and say, "No, I trust you." And you may not do it like me, but you you're going to do it and get the result that you need. But you'll just do it differently, and that's okay. You know, and I think as a leader, sometimes that's difficult to do. 
and I don't always get it right. I try. I try. Yeah, that's a that's a great point, actually. I, I just wanted to um I'd got a couple of things following on from that, I suppose. How challenging <laughs> is it to get that culture? that you want to embed within the city council cascaded down because obviously you've got your executive team that you work with on a daily basis but then you've got a big old staff there within the city and how you as I say can cascade that cultural ethic and and, uh, objective that you have down the organization and then the other one um perhaps slightly tricky I don't know um when you do get people who cross the line from curious to troublesome. How do you handle that? <laughs> uh, well, I'll start with the second one first. Uh, I would I would much rather people ask for forgiveness than permission. And, and I do, I truly believe that. And, you know, you know you, 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 <laughs> there's a difference between being helpfully and positively troublesome than just being belligerent. And yeah. uh, it, it, it's not difficult to see the, the difference and you know I, I welcome people you know coming into my office or sending me emails saying you know I'm really unhappy about this I think we could do it better you know and I'm saying you know bring it on let's have a conversation about it but those those people who you know who kind of say my dignity at work has been compromised because you're asking me to do my job that's that's not so good so um you know I would much rather people Buy into wanting to be the best that they can and do and do the best that they can, rather than be unhappy because we're holding them to account for doing their job. Uh, so and and that's and that's tricky, but you know you've you've got to do that as a as a leader in a large organisation like this. And and in terms of the changes that we've got to make, we're we're struggling with exactly the same issue that a lot of my chief exec colleagues are struggling with. And that's about the balance between working from home and working in the organisation. And, um, you, you know, it does it does make it different in the way in which you need to, to lead and influence. But but generally, my, my view is you can't change and transform from your bedroom. You know, I do, I do believe that. We're not, we're not expecting people to be in five days a week, but we are expecting people to be in... Um, frequently enough to get that sense of team and commitment and shared endeavour. Yeah, now, in terms of, of how do I cascade my my leadership philosophy, um, I, I do what a lot of other chief execs do. So there's a weekly bulletin that goes out looking back, but also looking forward. It's really important, I think, to, to acknowledge and, and celebrate the really great stuff that happens because you know, certainly at the moment where, where we are in terms of the financial challenges we're experiencing, it's it would be it would be too easy to just dwell on all of that and, and ignore the really brilliant stuff that, that's happened and is happening in, in this city and, and in the city council. You know, the fact that we've got good grading for looked after children, which is like hen's teeth. We we launched one of the most ambitious, exciting future city frameworks. You know, we've we've had a great kind of response to our adult social care practice. You know, really fundamental things that are, are you know influencing and, and enabling our, our our residents in a really positive way. And you know, a lot of our staff have been acknowledged and applauded for the great stuff that they do nationally. So, so I'm I'm really really. Um, intentional in the way in which I use that weekly bulletin, which goes out to every member of staff 
to, of course, be open and transparent with them about some of the challenges that we've got, but equally making sure that every single success is acknowledged on a weekly basis. And then we have all staff webinars as well, where literally um, once a month, any member of staff can dial in. Um, and we have an open forum where, you know, I'll, I'll do the first 10, 15 minutes of the topic of the day. And then we literally open it up to question and answers. So any member of staff can access both me and whoever is making a guest appearance on that as well. Mm. And, and then in addition to that, getting CLT out. So we have our meetings in different places and locations across the city. And we walk and talk and, and meet as many staff as we can. Okay. You, you touched briefly on the relationship between uh, a chief executive and also the senior management team within local authorities and the politicians. Uh, and I just wonder how you manage uh, that relationship. And and there will be times, I'm sure, when, well, I know this because, again, as I say, when I, when I was council leader, you know, we, we'd often have um, some fairly robust conversations with, with our management executive in terms of what our priorities were. And then we'd be told, uh, well, you know, actually, we think that how easy, difficult can it be? to have that relationship as poses what I'm saying, because I think to, to a lot of people out there in our communities, uh, and I get asked this question by very senior business leaders, this isn't something that, you know, oh, well, you know, you're thick if you don't know, who say to me, well, who's the real leader of the council? You know, who's the real decision maker? Is it the chief executive? Is it the politician? And I just wonder, you know, how that relationship is managed or how you manage that relationship. Um, so, so the, the relationship between a chief executive and the leader of the council needs to be really close, and there needs to be a clear understanding of roles, but also there needs to be a clear commitment to to the same thing. So, you know, the, the services that we deliver, how we deliver them, who we deliver them to, etc. And it's really important to me that I have a relationship with a leader that's based on trust and understanding and commitment to do the right thing. But equally, it's, it's you know, we do have different roles. I mean, local councillors and, and the, the kind of cabinet, you know, need to represent the political kind of... Um, uh, the, the political groups, but but also represent the residents that they were elected to serve. And as as officers, we need that needs to be paramount. You know, and it doesn't matter what professional kind of focus we have on stuff. The, ultimately, we're here to deliver a, serv a service to the people that that pay our wages, essentially. Um, I, I think it's it's my it's also my role to offer advice. You know, you hear this phrase, speak truth to power, and I think it's a bit overused, really, and I don't think people really understand what it means. But for a chief exec, it's, you know, it's my it's my job to, to lay out the options, to give sound advice, to have those relationships with the external auditor and to cent central government, um, civil servants, et cetera, and then to play that back into the political core and say, on, on the basis of of my professional judgment, these are, you know, these are the options that I think you should consider. And I will do everything to help you understand what the implications of those options and help you come to a decision that's going to be a decision that, that works for the, for the city council and the, the city. 
But it's got to be it's got to be a, tr- a true balanced relationship. That's got to be a partnership. Yeah, it's got to be a partnership. And, 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 and in, so- in terms of who, who rules the organisation, I think that's too easy. You know, it's got to be both. It's got to be a combination. Yeah. Both the professional officers and the political representatives, you know, yeah. they both inform each other. Mm. And, and local government's obviously different in this regard, but how concerned are you about some of the noises coming from politicians at Whitehall about civil servants? You know, people like Sue Gray, for example, have been in the public eye recently getting a bit of a kick in. Others as well from across the political spectrum. Uh, I you know, just on a personal level, Deborah, I find that quite concerning because I, I know that occasionally you get these spats between civil servants uh, and politicians, government level, but it's never seemed to be as toxic as it is now. And and I do talk to quite a few civil servants in Whitehall, and I think you know motivation isn't good there. I think that word you use, trust, appears to have broken down. Does that concern you, or do you think that will just Correct itself down the line. Well, I think first you need you need to talk to a central government civil servant because I don't I, I you know the, the the ones that I know and trust and work with you know are finding it all a bit a bit tricky and difficult and it, it and it does feel that the civil service is at a crossroads really um, and it could be because because of where we are on the electoral cycle. You know, I think there are whole many, you know, where we, you know, some of the big global issues and, you know, it must be really difficult to to implement some policies that you may not be, you know, philosophically attuned to. And I should imagine that's really tricky and difficult. Um, but but what I would say is that the, the civil servants that I work with are, are, are utmost professionals and don't allow all that that challenge that they're experiencing centrally to impact on the relationship they have with us at a local level. But it, it does, you know, viewing it, it does kind of, you know, I kind of, I kind of think this is such a waste of time and energy because, you know, it, it, if you're fighting amongst yourself, then you're not focused on the stuff that needs to be done. So. Delivery. And, and and the the other thing I just want to touch upon, um, Deborah, in terms of uh, leadership is, is were you learned most of your lessons good and bad you know the particular things that were you in a workplace you thought well i'll never do it that way and other things that you've taken forward in your own career and implemented yourself so i think my whole career has been a, a big a big classroom really and um you know certainly one of the you know one bit of advice that i give people starting out their career is you know you might work in a place that where where you're not particularly happy or you don't feel as though you're getting the opportunities you need to so you've got a choice you, you can either be really thoughtful about the lessons that you learned from that because there's always stuff to learn or you need to leave and and all too often many people choose to stay in a place because you know, for a whole variety of reasons, you know, and I make no judgment about whether they're the right or the wrong reasons. But my view is if you're in an organisation or in a place where you don't feel that you're given opportunities to fly, where you feel it's toxic, where you don't feel that you're able to do a good job, then leave. You know, it's, you know, don't don't stay and be ground down by it. You know, and if you've got the opportunity to leave, then you should take it and, and find somewhere else. And very often, 
you know, if people feel that they're on a linear path, you know, in their career, then they are sadly mistaken. And, you know, there, there will be many times when you will need to tack off and, you know, go to another place, geography, another organisation, and then learn, develop, be better, and then come back in. You know, and, and I think I think there are, there are t- too many people are prepared to just have a really pedestrian kind of experience because they're either frightened or their life you know context doesn't allow them to do it or whatever but but if you're going to stay then stay and be great don't stay and be one of those people that say it's everyone else it's everyone else's fault you know um so so what lessons did I, so that's a big lesson that i learned um but but i also worked with uh with a chief exec who was hideous absolutely hideous in every sense you know he was he was rude he was a bully he was spent all of his time shouting at people, people were terrified, you know, and I remember thinking, I don't know whether I'll ever become a chief exec, but if I do, I know I'm never going to be like that. <laughs> and um, and hopefully I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> but, but he didn't, pe- people didn't want to work for him. And, and he certainly didn't get the best out of people in, in my opinion. And then, you know, I worked with people like like Mo, who literally had people around her that would have done anything for her because they trusted her, they valued her, they respected her, and, and they believed in her as well. And, you know, and I'd like to think if a little bit of Mo Molum has rubbed off on me, then I'll be a truly great leader, you know. But, but you have to you have to take take lessons from everything that you do i think that's the, the conclusion really yeah yeah it's the last thing i want to talk about uh be terrible if i didn't really um how proud are you uh, of the commonwealth games and what was delivered in birmingham because you know what a fantastic success a very short period of time to deliver mm. as always dramas get in the way of these things but you had a pandemic I mean, come on. I mean, it was a short period of time anyway. What a fantastic fortnight it was. And and you must still be buzzing from the experience of those games. Yeah. And, and you know, Frank, I, I say to people, don't hide your light under a bushel. Over yeah, because we truly were extraordinary on a whole level of fronts. And it wasn't just 11 days of sport. It was so much more than that. And the impact it's had on the, you know, the pride in the city and this sense of we can do this, you know, which is which is why, you know, we're going to be host to the Euros, Euro Athletics, where, you know, there are going to be other mass participation events that, that want to come to the city because we were able to, to demonstrate and prove that we could we could deliver for that. But also this sense of um not accepting good enough is good enough. So if we're gonna do it, we're gonna be brilliant, you know, which is which is just great. And you know, just some really, really lovely stories that came out of the Tumblast games. You know, I was walking behind these three young lads when it was it was all when it started and one of them said to the other one, you know, I don't I don't get this. What is it? And someone said, Oh God man, you know, it's like the Olympics but better. You know, and then <laughs> yeah. and then and then just being in the, the stadium. And, uh, you know, it was 10,000 metres and, you know, someone was lapped twice. And, you know, the whole stadium 
stood up and clapped and willed this athlete as they ran by themselves twice around the track. And every single person in that stadium stood up and clapped and applauded and willed them to finish. And, and that was just the most amazing thing about the Commonwealth Games. Of course, it was about competing. Of course, it was about winning. But it, it was essentially about that sense of we want you to be great and to have a wonderful experience. And then the last story I'll, I'll, I'll tell, and I've got many, many st wonderful stories, was, um, you know, I, I met the, um, the Canadian uh, hockey team in one of the bars, which was a hardship. And uh, one of them, I said, oh, how are you getting on? And, they, and he said, well, you know, before we came, we were told that Birmingham was a bit shit. But actually, we love it. It is brilliant. And we're coming back because this is a brilliant city. You know, and that alone just encapsulated the fact that we were able to showcase the city literally to the world. And people saw Birmingham and said, this is a great place. Well, it was a brilliant occasion. It is a brilliant city. We've been there now for eight years, I think, as downtown in business. It's the friendliest place that you could go to. We've seen huge renaissance, actually, just in those yeah. eight years in terms of what's happened. It's all down to us, of course, Deborah, as you will appreciate. You know, since we rocked up, it's just flown. Um, but the one thing you said there, which I would absolutely agree with, and I've said this to Brummies continuously over that eight-year period is that sort of lack of confidence in a sense you know when yeah. you do some great things but you don't shout about them it's not something that scouts are particularly guilty of i have to tell you um but i think as you say sometimes you need a catalyst to turn that around and the commonwealth games hopefully has provided that i'm sure it has listen it's been great talking to you today thanks for eventually finding time where our diaries matched up but don't forget you've promised me a curry i'm waiting for this curry that you said i will take you for the best curry in birmingham so next time we meet hopefully it'll be over a curry deborah it'll be my pleasure it's been a delight to spend time with you frank thank you thank you thanks very much that was deborah capron the chief executive wonderful chief executive of birmingham city council uh in the downtown den and we'll be back uh next week uh, with another leader thanks for listening uh, so that was Deborah Cadman, the Chief Executive of Birmingham City Council, with me, uh, Frank McKenna, in the downtown den. Fascinating conversation, I'm sure you'll agree, and we will try and get Deborah along to a live downtown event in Birmingham in the not-too-distant future. Hope you've enjoyed this latest episode in the Leaders Series. We'll be back again next week. Tune in then, and uh, look after yourself in the meantime. This has been Frank McKenna in the downtown den.